Let's jump in here. Uh, we are actually starting a new series today um, called Life in the Spirit. And what we're doing in this new series is we're just really um, quickly, we're going to be in Romans. We're going to have four weeks and we're going to, by the end of our four weeks, we're going to have gotten through Romans chapter eight. There's a lot of good stuff in the book of Romans, but we're just doing one chapter, uh, Romans chapter eight, and we're going to take a look at what the Holy Spirit has for us in the way to live a life that pleases God. Here's the thing I'll tell you as we get started. When you are surrendered to the Holy Spirit, your life as a Christian makes a whole lot more sense. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, okay, you're not sure what exactly it is that I'm talking about, okay, I'm going to ask you to, to, to really focus in, drill down on what we're saying, because we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian this morning. And as we talk about that, we're going to see what role the Holy Spirit plays in, in, in making our lives work. Raise your hand, you ever seen Clash of the Titans? I mean the good one from like 1981. Not like the new one that was not awesome. Okay, but let me turn my clicker on here. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, oh, that's the one right there. There you go. That's Harry Hamlin, Perseus, Clash of the Titans. Now, when I was a kid, I mean, this movie came out when I was five. And uh, when I watched it when I was five, it scared me. Okay, so don't let your five-year-olds watch it. Although our five-year-olds have seen some stuff. So probably it won't bother any of them. But when I, when I first saw this movie, uh, it, it was awesome, right? Because there were swords, and there was sword fighting, and then there's Medusa, and there's a flying horse, and there's a big sea monster, and it's all this stuff. But here's the premise of the movie. That's Perseus. Perseus struggles throughout this movie because Perseus is trying to figure out what his dual identity is all about. See, Perseus is, um, in Greek mythology, not like loving Greek mythology right now. Don't anybody walk out, man, why is that guy preaching Greek mythology? It's all fake. I get it. Okay. Give me a little grace. But anyway, here's what happens. Right? In Greek mythology, Perseus is the son of Zeus and a human. So he's got this dual identity. He's half God, half mortal. Um, and so he struggles with this. Uh, throughout the movie, figuring out who he is and what he's meant to do and what his destiny is and all of that as it plays together. And the reason I've been thinking about that this week, other than I haven't seen this movie in a while, and uh, we're going on vacation soon, and one of the things that we vowed to do to our kids on vacation, I mean for our kids on vacation, <laughs> um, Carrie and I and my brother and sister-in-law and their two kids and our kids, and, and we've decided that we will, every night on vacation, we will make them watch an awesome 80s movie that they don't think they want to watch. <laughs> this will be one of them. I'm willing to take other suggestions if you've got them later on, but this will be one of them. So I've been thinking a little bit about this lately, uh, but this is the dual identity. And you know what's fun is the reason it makes for such good film, the reason it's such a good uh, myth, the reason it's such a good thing that we like to... We all struggle with dual identity. Every single one of us, whether we believe it or want to know it or not, every single one of us struggles with a dual identity because every person that's ever existed is made in the very image of God. It just is what it is. Every single one of you is made in the image of God. But yet at the same time, 
We're born into this broken nastiness. We're born under a curse. At the same time, not only are we made in the image of God, but we have proclivity to sin. And our natural impulse and pull is to engage in sin. And so we've got this dual identity that we wrestle with. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, you probably haven't identified this. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you probably aren't too concerned about the duality of who you are. But if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then I promise you, you've struggled with this. The fact that I know I am made in the image of God and that God calls me to better and the fact that no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to break free from sin that holds on to me. And that's the nature of our relationship. And so we have this question that we ask, and it's this, this, this thing we want to know, and it's, is it always going to be this way? Is it always going to be that, that I know better, and I strive for better, and I want better, but that I'm always frustrated by my defeat at the hands of sin? And, and, and listen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Christian that struggles with alcohol, you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, I'm, I, I, I know I want better, but then I'm sucked back in. You struggle, you struggle with anger? You get it? You're with me? You struggle with same-sex attraction? Yeah, you, you got that too. We're, I know what I'm called to, but I'm pulled back in. This, this, it seems to have me. And we want to know, is it always going to be like that? Or is there some kind of power? Is there something that can help me? Is there something that, that will allow me to be different? And I'm going to be honest with you. You are not the first people to have these questions. In fact, you're not the best person to ever have this question. Carrie said, don't wear a jacket. It's going to be hot. I said, no, it's not. It's Father's Day. You couldn't let me be right once. Whatever. Anyway, here's the deal. Um, you're not the first person to have this issue. Paul. Paul had this issue. I'm going to read for you. Out of, we're, we're actually studying Romans 8 during this series, but we're going to back up just a little bit before we get going, and we're going to read how we jump in through Romans 7. We're going to see what Paul says. You've got most of it on your screen, but I'm going to read it for you here so you can get all of it. Here's what he says. Um, and and I, as I read this, I want you to feel what he's feeling. Practice your empathy. Put yourself in his shoes, right? Because you've been here. I promise you, you've been here. I've been here. We live here daily, even if we don't like to admit it. So the trouble is not with the law. I'm sorry. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sin nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It's the sin living in me that does it. And he says this, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I do what is right, I'm sorry, when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. 
oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sin nature, I'm a slave to sin. And so Paul sets out for us as we get started this dual nature of who he is and what's happening. He says, I really, really, really want to do well. I really, really, really want to do what's right, but I really, really, really suck at it. It's my version of what Paul says. He says, I want to do well. I strive to do right. In my heart, in my mind, I know what I desire to do, but then I go and do the opposite anyway. I go and do exactly the different thing that I said to myself, I'm not doing it today. Not today. Today I'm going to be different. Today I'm going to stand firm. Today I'm going to look at that sin and I'm going to say no. And then I get out of bed. And it happens again. And Paul says, is there any hope for me? And of course the answer is yes. Thanks be to God, he says, that the answer is in Christ Jesus. And we're going to see that as we get into the text. But I want, to, I want to tell you here, I want to level with you here. If you're struggling like Paul when he wrote this, I get it. See, I think sometimes here's what happens. You come to church, you go to small group, you sit in Bible studies, and, and what is it we always talk about? We always talk about your need to change. We always talk about your need to put sin behind you and to move forward in holiness. We always talk about the need to be better, to be who we've been remade to be. We always talk about it in terms like that. But, but here's the thing that I want you to understand is I get that that starts to beat you down after a while and that you might be thinking, yeah, I try, Matt, I'm trying, and I don't know what to do about it because it doesn't seem to matter how hard I try or what effort I put into it or anything like that. And so here's, here's what I want you to know, what I need you to know. If you're struggling this morning, this series is for you. First of all, God's not mad at you. To a much less significant degree, it doesn't matter nearly as much as how God thinks of you. God's not mad at you to a much less significant degree. I'm not mad at you when you struggle with sin. Hopefully you're not mad at me when I struggle with sin. We're trying, okay? And hopefully this text, this, this series, these four weeks in Romans 8, hopefully these will be good for you. This is for you because this is all about how to do it better through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're going to jump right in here. Romans 8, and we'll get started. So now, this is what Paul says. He just got done. We just finished up 7 with him saying, there's no hope for me, it seems like, because I can't do what I want to do. There's no hope for me. What am I supposed to do now? It always happens. It never fails. I keep messing it up. Everything is jacked up. Everything is wrong. We're dirty. I'm broken. I'm messy. I can't fix it. What do I do now? And here's what he says, though. He gets to Romans 8, and he says, aha, but check this out. But now, so right now in my life, though, here's what he has grown to understand. And no, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. It's Romans 8, 1 there. He says, but now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Something 
different is happening if you belong to Christ Jesus. Everything is now better when you belong to Christ Jesus. And here's what I need you to understand about the word condemnation. That's a legal term. Okay, we're going to get into some theological words today. They're not overly fancy. Um, if you don't remember them, that's fine. But these will shape how we're trying to live and what we're trying to do. But it says right now, there is no condemnation for those who are belonging, who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what you need to know. When you are in Christ Jesus, that's code for you are now a Christian. What it means to be in Christ Jesus means that you have surrendered to and you are following Jesus. Now, if you're perfect like I am, thank you, you're supposed to laugh louder. I, I appreciate that you were like, yeah, okay, go on. Yeah, no. If you're perfect like I am, I said no pastor ever, um, when you follow Jesus, you follow in a straight line. I follow Jesus like I play golf. Way over to the left, and then way back over to the right. It's army golf, right? Left, right, left. Ah, uh, whatever. That's how I follow Jesus. The more I follow Jesus, the more I stay in the fairway. Right? I don't, I, the, the more I, I, I walk in a straighter path, I don't meander as much as I used to. Okay? But this is the goal now. When you are in Christ Jesus, when you belong to Christ Jesus, you have said, I, I, am, I am surrendering to Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm broken. I know I need salvation. I come to the cross. Forgive me of my sinfulness, and I'm following you. And I try and I'm where Paul is, and sometimes I know as I'm following Jesus that that's the road I want, but I end up over here on this other path, and I don't know how I got there, and it makes me angry, and I course correct, and then the next day I, I get it, okay? But the goal here is to follow Jesus, and what Paul's saying is, even if you're off course a little bit, even if you're wandering, even if it's not working for you, get this, when you are in Christ Jesus, when you belong to Jesus, there is no condemnation in you. God is not angry at you. You are legally, here's the fancy word, justified. You are justified. It's the process of justification that says there's a legal term describing God's pardon and acceptance of you as a sinner. And it's not because there wasn't enough evidence to convict you. There were mountains and mountains and mountains of evidence ready to convict you. No reasonable jury would ever have let you off. Now, before you get too indignant about how good you really are deep down and you know it, God knows everything. God knows every thought you've ever had. God knows every lie you've ever told. God knows every sin you've ever engaged in. God knows every time, listen, this one, this one really stings. God knows every time you've thought to yourself, I shouldn't do this. And then you do it anyway. God is intimately familiar with every one of those instances in your life. Mountains and mountains and piles and piles of evidence. But because of the cross, because of this moment where we are now in Christ Jesus, he says, you are not guilty. 
Actually, it's, it's better than that. What he says is, you are extremely guilty, but I'll pay it. Story of a, it's a good Father's Day story. Story of a dad and his son, and the dad is a judge. And he is known for being upright, faithful to the law, and just. Harsh to a degree, seen by some, right? But, but really what it is, is it just means he follows the letter of the law. And he finds, um, in this small town, he finds that his son, as a, as a young 18-year-old man, is sitting in his courtroom, charged with a crime. And the evidence is significant. And so everybody wonders, well, we know he loves his son. What's he going to do? How's he going to, to rule? Is, is the judgment going to be light? Or will it be the same as it is with everybody else? Will, will, will he be found not guilty? Will, will the love that he, will it just push him past a guilty verdict? And, and everybody wonders, and, and the verdict comes down, and the judge does exactly what the judge should do. He finds his son guilty. And he, and he warrants the penalty that the crime deserves. Some people were pleased with the decision because they thought, well, good, at least we know he's fair. Other people were appalled at the decision. How could the judge do that to his, his very own son? But the evidence is what it is. There was no denying that his son was guilty, but then here's what the judge does. He stands up after rendering the verdict. He takes off his robe he lays it on the chair, and he walks to the bailiff, and he says, I'll pay the penalty. He's guilty, but I'll pay the penalty. That's what happens at justification. God says, yes, you're guilty. Yes, you're broken, but I will pay for you. That's what happened on the cross. That's what we celebrate. That's what it means to be in Christ. Okay, it's a legal term, but get this. It's a legal term then with a practical application. And the practical application is this word sanctification. You are justified in Christ Jesus. He says, yes, I see your sin, but I'm going to cover your sin for you. And now you are free. Okay, but the practical part of that is this fancy word called sanctification. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Be careful. Don't mix those two. They're not the same. Okay? You cannot be sanctified until you are justified. Okay? Don't mix up those two. You can't become sanctified. You can't become more and more like Jesus until you become free from sin, okay? But you can't become free from sin and then decide that you have no interest in becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the process of sanctification. One follows the other. Now, Paul's going to get into this here, okay, as we, as we get into these next texts, and you're going to see what exactly it is that provides us the help in that struggle. Because you're sitting here, and, and, and if you're tracking me, you're thinking, okay, Matt, I get it. Okay, but we're right back where we started. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm supposed to be following Jesus, and I keep doing it wrong. So what? So Paul sets the stage here, and he says, look, you have no condemnation 
under Christ Jesus. And then he gets this. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Okay, so this is where the help comes in. Okay, you really got to understand this because this gets really confusing if you're not tracking well. Jesus breaks the power of sin in your life. He says, I will take the punishment for you. And then it's the Holy Spirit that comes in and frees you from the hold that sin has on you. You remember how we've talked about 2 Corinthians 5.17 before? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that when you are in Christ, what happens is you are a new creation. Your old life kind of dies, and your new life that's born in the Spirit is born and raised up in its place. That's not Jesus's work in your life. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. See, Jesus dies on the cross to provide payment for your sin. When you come to him, then the Holy Spirit gets involved in your life, and the Holy Spirit breaks the chains of sin that had you bound before. So now you are free to live differently than you did, and so it's because you belong to to Christ, now the power of the Holy Spirit frees you from the power of sin that leads to death, okay? It's, it's a two-step process that happens when you become a Christian. You come to Jesus at the cross, you ask for forgiveness of your sins, and you commit to following him. Then the Holy Spirit comes into your life, breaks the chain that had you bound to your old sin nature, and pushes you on the path of growing to be more like Jesus. That's how the Holy Spirit works in your life. Now, the Holy Spirit is one of those things that we don't talk very much about. And we don't talk very much about it because there's a lot of things that happen in churches when you start talking about the Holy Spirit. Usually we get in fights about the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine? How absurd is that? Here's what we do about the Holy Spirit. We talk about God, the Holy Spirit, and then we get in a fight over him in churches. Um, There are church splits because of the way we talk about the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's a couple things we need to do as we are getting into this series about the Holy Spirit. First thing I need you to know is that some of what you think you know about the Holy Spirit, you don't know. Unless you've done good Bible scholarship, okay, a lot of what you think you know about the Holy Spirit, you do not know. Okay, because most of what we know Uh, If you're like I was before I went to seminary and started studying some of these things, um, you're you're like I was. And here's what happens. It's what we know is what we're told. What somebody who who looks like me, maybe slightly less good looking, somebody that looks like me, stands up here, tells you everything you need to know about the Holy Spirit. You take, if you're like me, you take good notes in your book. And you decide, well, the guy I trust that's on the platform, that studies the word, this is what he's telling me about the Holy Spirit, so therefore it must be what's true, and and I've got it. The problem with that is that it's not always the case. And just because somebody speaks authoritatively about something doesn't mean it's the case. In fact, I would describe this church as a spirit-filled church. I am confident that I am seeking the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. I am confident that your elders are seeking the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. 
I walk around our sanctuary before the start of every Sunday, asking the Holy Spirit to come. The elders gather in the room prior to every Sunday service, begging God to be glorified and the Holy Spirit to have his way. Listen to me. This is a spirit-filled church. But yet, if I'm talking to somebody, I'm having a conversation with somebody, um, and, and this has happened here before, um, you know, it's like, well, Matt, I love our church, but I wish it was spirit-filled. Carrie and I were at a baseball game the other day talking to somebody who was like, yeah, I can't really find a spirit-filled church in Vinton. And Carrie, because she didn't grow up in the church and doesn't have church lingo, was like, I know what church you go to. That's a great church. Holy Spirit's active in that church. I'm sure of it. But, but what she doesn't understand is that because we do this thing where we just kind of know what people have told us and we have our... that In that guy's mind, Holy Spirit meant, well, if you're not talking in tongues then it can't possibly be a spirit-filled. If you have a start and an end time, how can the Holy Spirit ever be active in the church? Like this is one of the big complaints that I get. Um, there's a, a gentleman that I know and I respect, and, and he's come here on occasion, um, he and his wife, and, um, but, but they're more Pentecostal by nature, so this is not really their church. He's a retired pastor, and, and we talk, and, and, and he's like, well, it's just, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't have the freedom to move in your church. Because you know when you're supposed to end. Like, well, explain that to me. Well, like, if you tell the Holy Spirit when you're supposed to wrap up every Sunday, then how can he be free to move? And we have sermon series planned out. Like, I know what we're doing all summer long. How can the Holy Spirit be free to move if you have every week regimented and planned? But that's a terrible way to view the Holy Spirit. Are you really, really, really telling me that the Holy Spirit can't be involved in planning? Are we really telling me that God is so chaotic? That, that God, God, a God of order and creation and systems is so chaotic that he can't move in planning? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. When people say spirit-filled, you know what, when they see my notes to, that prepared for a sermon, I spend a good probably 15, 20 hours a week in sermon prep. It's like, well, how can you expect the Holy Spirit to move if you spent 20 weeks figure, or 20 hours this week figuring out what to say? I'm like, well, what's your system? Well, I get up on Sunday morning, and I open my Bible, and I start reading. And when the Holy Spirit prompts me, I stop, and that's what I'm going to preach to you this morning. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know how spirit-filled that is. That just seems lazy. We have different opinions. Now, here's the thing. I'm not mad at those guys, and hopefully they're not mad at me. It's just different. But this is why we have to say, whatever we think we might know about the Holy Spirit, we have to put a pin in, and we have to come back to this. There's two words I put on the screen for you there, and, and, and you don't need to, to know what they are, memorize what they are, but I want to tell you what the process is when we find out what the Bible really has to say. There's a process called exegesis. Exegesis means I use this as my lens. Everything I understand, I see through this as the primary lens. Okay? So I read scripture, and then from my reading of scripture, I figure out what it is that God is trying to say. Okay? That means I come with no preconceived ideas. Okay? I just read, and I say, okay, what's the best way I can interpret this? By the way, that's why I have the theological stances I have. We've talked about how maybe I differ with some other churches or some other things theologically in, in terms of whether it's 
it's uh, salvation or, or baptism or um, the Holy Spirit or gifts of the Spirit or any of those things, because my best goal is always to let Scripture interpret itself. And I'll use the early church, I'll use the culture, I'll use history to help me understand, but first and foremost, this is the authority when I'm trying to figure things out. That's called exegesis. That is the gold standard in understanding what the Bible has to say, is letting the Bible interpret itself. The other philosophical way of doing this is called eisegesis. Eisegesis means I have an idea in my head of the way something should be, and then I go to the Bible and I find different texts that I can read that will tell me that that's true. With all due respect to our Catholic friends, because this is the conversation I had most recently about this, with all due respect to our Catholic friends, who I, I differ theologically somewhat, especially in terms of heaven and hell, um, and the idea of something called... Um, thank you, my goodness. I'm like Pentecost. No, it's a whole different thing. Purgatory. I ask, show me. Because the way I interpret is I let the Bible interpret itself. Show me purgatory. And, and, and I get some verses that if I already believed purgatory was real, I could maybe pull it out of there. But there's no way a natural reading with no background, with no idea, there's no way I would read this on a desert island all by myself and I would read the scripture and I would say, oh, that's talking about this purgatory. It doesn't happen. Okay? And so we want to be really careful about how we read Scripture. And that, the reason I bring that up to you is because this informs what we do with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So if we read Scripture carefully and we, what, we let Scripture interpret itself, there are a few things that we can all come to some common agreement about what is true about the Holy Spirit. Okay? There's seven of them we're going to look at real quick. One is the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. There are texts, lots of things in scripture that will point to this reality. I just chose one for you here for, for sake of time. Isaiah 9, 6 says this, for a child is, by the way, this is the Christmas thing, right? This is all about Jesus. Okay. This is all about Jesus, but here's what it says. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. Talking about Jesus. Okay. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor. That's the language we use for the Holy Spirit. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Yahweh, and the Prince of Peace. And so in this one text that describes the coming child on Christmas, Jesus Christ, we're using language to say, he's coming, here's who he is. He is the everlasting Father. He is the mighty God. He is Yahweh. He's the counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised us will come. And he's obviously God in flesh. So we see this picture. The, whole, uh, the Trinity is one of those goofy things. If you can adequately explain the Trinity, you should write a book. You'll make millions. Because people have been adequately trying to explain the Trinity for centuries. People are like, oh, it's like an egg. Right? It's one egg, but it's the shell and the white part and the yolk. That falls apart. It's like a three-leaf clover. Right? Each clover separate but brought together on the stalk, yeah. Okay, it's like water. Water. It's, it's one thing, H2O, but it, it can be, it can exist in steam or in liquid or in ice. But they all fall apart because ultimately God is like nothing else. Okay? And that shouldn't scare us. That should lead us to worship. 
that the God of the universe is like nothing else. Okay, we keep going. Uh, the Holy Spirit makes a difference in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit comes to us um, as a response for accepting and surrendering to Jesus. There's two things there that you need to know. One is, read through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit changes everything. The day of Pentecost, you get all of the believers in an upper room with the doors locked, waiting. They don't know what they're waiting for. They know they're waiting for this thing that Jesus promised, but they don't know what it is. They don't know how it'll be, and they're scared, and they're nervous, and they're anxious, and they don't know what's happening. Then the next thing you know, the Holy Spirit comes in power on each of them, and the next thing you know, they are on fire for the church. They are putting themselves in harm's way. They are preaching in the temple. They are preaching in synagogues. They are beaten, whipped, scourged. They are crucified upside down. They are beheaded. They are tortured for the sake of the gospel, and they never back down. They're hidden in an upper room with the door locked, waiting, and now they are out and on fire. Paul, Paul, who used to be about the business of persecuting Christians, putting them to death, all of a sudden, Paul forfeits his own life so he can tell people why they need to be Christian. The Holy Spirit changes things, and the Holy Spirit comes to believers Look at this in Acts 2.38. This is Peter talking after that day of Pentecost. He's preaching to the Jews, and he's saying to them, you killed Jesus, and they're cut to the core, and they say, well, what can we do? And he says, well, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are having some theological issues right here. exegesis. I read scripture, and to the best of my ability, I figure out what I'm supposed to do based on what I read. Stop worrying about the order. Each of you repent of your sins, turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is a comes to us as a response to our trusting and following Jesus. And by the way, I'll give you a plug for baptism there. If you are following Jesus and you have not been baptized, I don't know any way to read that other than follow Jesus, get baptized. I, I really don't. And as I read through scripture, I can't see anything else that says, oh, you should be, you should be a believer in Christ, but you can skip baptism. It's not for you. And the Holy Spirit comes as a response to following Jesus and being obedient to Jesus. And we keep going. The Holy Spirit is a person. John 14, 17. He is the Holy Spirit. It's not an it. It's not a what. It's not a mystical force. Okay? The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and it doesn't recognize him. But you, Christian, know him because he lives with you now. And later he will be in you. That's Jesus talking. He says, he's with us now, but when I go, he will live in you. We just read that as a response to following Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in us. He's a person. And the Holy Spirit prays for us. We'll get to this later in Romans 8. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Get this, Christian. God himself is praying for you. You feel weak? You feel like you can't stand up to sin? 
you feel like you're not sure what it is you're supposed to do with your life, you feel like you'll never be able to break free, you feel like you're stuck in addiction or whatever it is and you can't move forward, God himself is praying for you. You ever asked me to pray for you? Like, hey, Matt, will you pray for me? I will pray for you, right? I will absolutely pray for you. And, and that's good, right? There's power in praying for each other. But God himself in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is actively praying for you as you go through your life. That's a big deal. You're like, I can't do it. I can't stand up to that sin. Yes, you can. I know you can because God himself is pleading for you. God himself is praying for you. And these last two, the Holy Spirit has emotion and the Holy Spirit is a down payment. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit, okay? Emotion. You can bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. You want to know how to bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit? Sin. Actively sin. That brings sorrow to the Holy Spirit. Start a church fight. He hates that one, right? We, we bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit when we live in ways that dishonor him. That's why when, when people say, well, we want to be spirit-filled, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Look, the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. God's Holy Spirit, by the way you live, don't, don't bring sorrow. Remember, the Holy Spirit has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Here's another theological thing. Best I can understand from Scripture. Again, we're going to disagree on this. Good Christians will disagree on this, and so I won't by any means say that I have to be right. But when I read Scripture, this is the best I get. You are not losing your salvation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit that lives in you has sealed you. He's identified you as his own, guaranteeing, that's a guarantee from God. I don't know how much better it gets. Guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. It's what's happening in you as a Christian. You're like, I can't stand up to sin. I keep going where I don't want to go. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I understand. But get this. God himself is living in you. God himself is praying for you. God himself has sealed you for the day of redemption. You are free. You don't have to do these things. You have freedom to move on. And when you mess up, God's got you. He's identified you as his own. And so Paul's saying, look, that's the Holy Spirit that lives in you. That's the Holy Spirit that's freed you from sin. That's the Holy Spirit that has made everything new in your life. That's why it's different. That's why you're saved. That's why you're safe. That's why you can live a life that grows to honor God with the way you live. And we just finish up here these last two verses real quick. Here's what he says. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sin nature. Okay, the law of Moses, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. This is Paul talking. He's like, okay, Jesus, though, Jesus came with a purpose. Jesus came to save you. Jesus came to break the power of sin. He's the sacrifice on the cross that does this. The law of Moses couldn't do it because of your sin nature, because you would sacrifice the animal, but then you'd go out and you'd keep sinning. It was never enough. It was never enough to really cleanse you. Okay? But he sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. Get this. It's because of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Drill down on that. That God has declared an end to sin's control over you. Sin no longer rules in your heart. Sin 
rears its ugly head in your heart. Sin looks pretty. Sin seems delicious. Sin seems like it's what I want. And it tempts, and it drags, and it tries to pull me away. But when I read this, I have hope. And Paul had hope. That's why he wrote it, because it says this. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. He ended that reality. The reality of you are stuck in your sin, and you can't help to be different. No, no, no. God said that is dumb. That is over. That is finished. It no longer happens that way. You now can choose different because of this. And then we finish up with this. Uh, that should say 8-4. Sorry about that. He says, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Holy Spirit. So as we wrap this up today, we understand just in these, these first few verses in Romans 8, Okay, just these four quick verses that are going to set the stage for the next weeks that we go through to talk about how we live in the Spirit. It says, look, when you are in Christ, you are different than you ever were before. Sin has no legal hold on you because you are justified. So you are no longer obligated to live in sin. But the power of sin has been severed, broken. You are no longer a slave to sin. So now it's up to you to live a life that's different than that. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in, and that's what we'll continue to read as we get into the rest of Romans 8. But for right now, we just end this week with the idea that says we are free from the power of sin. That when we are in Christ, sin has no hold on us. God is not mad at us. We are legally justified. When God looks at us, he sees us as perfect and spotless. I, listen, I don't know what you did this morning, but for some of you, Sunday mornings, Getting to church is the most unholy time in your week, especially if you've got kids. I get that, right? Here's the deal. In spite of that, in spite of whatever sin you might have had this morning, when you walk through the door at church, God looks at you, he sees you as perfect, he sees you as spotless, he sees the righteousness that Christ brought, he sees that hanging on you like a robe. That's his whole desire of the cross, is to give you the righteousness of Christ. And then we figure out how to move forward. But don't be confused that when you struggle, when you fall, that somehow God is breaking ties with you. It's not happening. The Holy Spirit lives in you. It seals you for the day of redemption. That's a promise of God. It's not going anywhere. Okay, and this is how we end this in Isaiah 1, 18. This is just a reminder. This is what God calls you to. He says, come, let's settle this. Your sin are scarlet. They're stark. They're bright. They're deep. They're stained. But I will make them white as snow. Though they're red like crimson and they run, it's that color of blood, right? Stains everything. But, but I got this. He says, I will make them white as wool. That's the promise of the cross. And so that when God looks at you, he sees you as clean and right. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward. I'm going to prepare to take this morning's offering. And as we do that, we're going to see this testimony. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. Uh, we're going to see this testimony uh, from Dave Coots um, talking about his journey a little bit. 
and then we'll, we'll worship together in song, and uh, then Kevin will come and dismiss us. But as we, as we watch this video and as we sing, I want you to reflect on the reality of if you are here today and you are in Christ, it is settled. It is finished. What you are struggling with today is not your salvation. What you are struggling with is living a life that honors God. But when God sees you, he sees you as pure and spotless.